Chapter thirty one of the Memoirs of Chateaubriand, seventeen sixty eight to eighteen hundred, part three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee, Memoirs of Chateaubriand, seventeen sixty eight to eighteen hundred, part three, by Francois Rene de Chateaubriand, chapter thirty one. London from April till September, eighteen twenty two. Novels, old and new. Richardson, Walter Scott. At the close of the last century, novels had fallen under a general prescription. Richardson slept forgotten. His countrymen fancied they could detect in his style traces of the society in which he had moved. Fielding kept his place well. Stern, the upholder of originality, was out of fashion. The vicar of Wakefield was still read. If Richardson is deficient in style, his works will not survive, because an author's fame depends upon style alone. It is vain to rebel against this truth. The best-written works, filled with portraitures of great truthfulness, and with a thousand other good qualities, will perish if they are deficient in style. Style, and there are a thousand kinds, cannot be learned. It is the gift of heaven, a natural endowment. But if Richardson has fallen into disrepute merely in consequence of a certain vulgar phraseology, intolerable to refined society, his works will live again. The revolution which is in progress, by abasing the aristocracy and raising up the middle classes, will render the traces of the lower class of society and their exclusive language less perceptible or make them wholly disappear. Clarissa Harlow and Tom Jones are the sources from whence have sprung the two principal branches of the family of modern English novels, the novels of family life and domestic scenes, and those of invention and delineations of general society. After the time of Richardson, the manners of high life made an eruption into the domain of fiction. Novels were then filled, with castles, lords, ladies, water-parties, scenes on the race-course, at the ball, the opera, at Rainley, with chit-chat and endless loquacity. The scene was not long in changing to Italy, lovers crossed the Alps in the midst of fearful perils and horrors of soul enough to melt lions. The lions shed tears. The jargon of good society was adopted. Among the thousands of novels with which England has been inundated for half a century past, two have kept their ground, Caleb Williams and the Monk. I never met with Godwin during my exile in London, but saw Lewis twice. He was a young member of Parliament, very agreeable, and had all the air and manners of a Frenchman. The writings of Mrs. Radcliffe form a species of themselves. Those of Mrs. Barbel, Miss Edgeworth, Miss Burney, etc., have, it is said, a chance of living. There ought, says Montaigne, to be laws of coercion passed against silly and useless scribblers, as there are laws against vagabonds and idlers, such as I am, and a hundred others, would be banished from the hands of our people. Scribbling seems to be one of the symptoms of a dissolute age. All those different schools of novelists, whether sedentary or travellers by diligence or post, novelists of lakes and mountains, of ruins and phantoms, or novelists of cities and drawing-rooms, have, however, now all perished in the new school of Walter Scott, just as poetry has gone headlong after the steps of Lord Byron. The illustrious Scotch writer made his debut on the theatre of literature at the time of my exile in London by a translation of Goethe's Goethe von Berlichingen. He continued to gain reputation by his poetry, and the bent of his inclination led him at length to the novel. He appears to me to have created a false species. He has perverted both the novel and history. The novelist has tried to write historical novels, and the historian to embellish histories. If, in reading Walter Scott, I am often obliged to pass by interminable conversations, it is doubtless my fault. But in my eyes, one of his great merits is, 
that his writings may be put into every one's hands. It demands much greater efforts of ability to interest while keeping within the limits of order than to please by passing beyond its bounds. It is less easy to regulate the heart than to disturb it. Burke kept English politics in the past. Walter Scott carried the English back again to the Middle Ages. All that he wrote, made and built, was Gothic. Books, furniture, houses, churches, and castles. But the lords of Magna Carta are now the fashionables of Bond Street, a frivolous race, who reside in their ancient mansions, waiting the arrival of new generations, who are preparing to drive them out. Recent Poetry. Beatty. At the same time in which the novel became romantic, poetry underwent a similar transformation. Cooper abandoned the French school in order to revive the national one. Burns began the same revolution in Scotland. After them came the restorers of ballad poetry. Several of these poets, from the years 1792 till 1800, belonged to what was called the Lake School, because these writers lived on the shores of the Cumberland and Westmoreland lakes, and sometimes celebrated their beauties. Moore, Campbell, Rogers, Crabb, Wordsworth, Hunt, Knowles, Lord Holland, Canning, and Croker, are still alive for the honour of English literature. But a man must be English-born, duly to appreciate the merits of a peculiar species of composition, which comes home to those alone who are natives of the soil. In a living literature, no one is a competent judge except of works written in his own language. It is vain to hope for a thorough feeling of a foreign idiom. The nurse-milk is wanting, as well as the first words which have been learnt while in our swaddling clothes. Certain tones can only belong to fatherland. Of all our men of letters, the English and the Germans have the most extraordinary notions. They admire what we despise, they despise what we admire. They neither understand Racine, nor La Fontaine, nor even Molière completely. It makes one laugh to hear who are our great writers. In London, Vienna, Berlin, Petersburg, Munich, Leipzig, Göttingen, and Cologne, to hear what people read with a rage, and what do they not read at all? When the merit of an author consists especially in diction, a stranger never can form an accurate estimate of this beauty. The more his powers are individual and national, the more his mysteries escape a mind which is not, so to speak, a fellow-countryman of their talents. We admire the Greeks and Romans upon tradition. We derive this admiration from authority, and the Greeks and Romans are no longer here to scoff at the opinions of us barbarians. Which of us can form any adequate idea of the harmony of Demosthenes and Cicero's prose, of the musical cadences of Alceus and Horace, as these were seized upon and felt by a Greek and Latin ear? It has been mentioned that real beauties are those of all times and all countries. Yes, beauties of sentiment and thought, but not beauties of style. Style is not, like thought, a cosmopolite. It has a native land, a climate and sun of its own. Burns, Mason and Cooper died during my exile in London, before and during 1800. They closed the century. I commenced it. Darwin and Beattie died two years after my return to France. Beattie announced the new era of lyrics. The minstrel, or the progress of genius, is a description of the first influence of the muse upon a young bard, still ignorant of the power with which he is tormented. At one time, the future poet goes and sits down upon the seashore during a storm. At another, he leaves the village sports to listen apart, in the distance, to the sound of the bagpipe. Beattie has run through the whole series of dreams and melancholy ideas, of which other poets have believed themselves to be the discoverers. Beattie proposed to himself to continue his poem, and he has, in fact, written a second canto. Edwin, one evening, hears a grave voice proceeding from the depths of a valley. It was that of a hermit, who, after having seen the vanities and illusions of the world, 
had buried himself in this retreat to study the inward life of his own soul and celebrate the wonders of the creator this hermit instructs the young minstrel and reveals to him the secret of his genius the idea was a happy one the execution was far from equal to the conception beatty was destined to shed tears the death of his son crushed his heart like a sheen after the loss of oscar he hung up his harp on the branches of an oak perhaps beatty's son was that young minstrel of whom a father had sung and whose steps he no longer saw on the mountains End of chapter thirty one